So how many of you believe that Jesus changes everything? Amen. Amen. How many of you believe that Jesus changes everything? How many of you really believe that Jesus changes everything? That's better. Yes, he does. And uh, that's why I'm so passionate, so in love with Jesus and have been for, oh my goodness, uh, 50 years now. And because Jesus so radically changed my life and I know that he can change yours. And if we're not careful, we can, we can reduce Jesus to what I call Prozac Jesus where he just kind of makes us feel calm and helps us get out of the jam from time to time. But you've never really come to the place where you've fully surrendered your heart and your life to him. You, know, you wanted to receive Jesus as Savior. You wanted to have your sins forgiven, but you never really embraced him as Lord. But he doesn't come one or the other. He comes as a package deal. In fact, in the Bible, and even when Paul talked about it in Romans chapter 10, when we confess our, you know, with our mouth, Jesus as what? Lord, not a Savior as Lord. He comes as Savior. But what God wants, what Jesus asks of us, is that we surrender ourselves to his Lordship. And when we surrender to his Lordship, we receive him as our Savior, the one who is forever just absolutely transformed our lives in ways that we will spend a lifetime unpacking all that Christ has done for us and how he is working in us, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to go through the book of Romans. In the first eight chapters, Paul's just talking about the power of God as seen through salvation. The power rests in the gospel. The gospel speaks of Jesus. The gospel is Jesus in my place. And when Jesus is in my place, becomes a part of my life, all of a sudden I'm dramatically changed. I'm saved. I'm forgiven of all my sins. I'm placed into Christ and he into me. And now I am justified before God as, as though I've never sinned, past, present, or future. And my, my life has been radically changed. Yours has been radically changed. But God doesn't just leave us there. He says it is the power of God unto salvation to save and to heal so we're going to talk about this next week, how oftentimes trauma in our lives becomes the identity of our lives, and God wants to break that off of you so that you begin living in the freedom of Christ as he has come to set us free. And to deliver us, what? to deliver us from what? To deliver us from the mindset that so orchestrates itself in our thought processes that Satan uses against us, and Paul says he he builds strongholds or, you know, fortresses in our thought patterns that keep us, you know, embedded to and chained to the past and our past thoughts. And those thoughts are running through your mind 24-7. Probably 90% of the thoughts you had yesterday, you have them again today. And they're negative thoughts. And you see yourself in a negative viewpoint from God's perspective. And all of a sudden, your life is not moving in the direction you desire for it to move. Why is this... Why, why is God so intrinsically involved in our lives? Because he knows how corrupted sin has, has you know, just dealt with us. Our, our minds are corrupt. Our emotions are distorted. Our will is extremely rebellious. You and I came out of the womb with rebellious wills. If you don't believe that, have children. You'll discover that really quickly, how rebellious your children are. And it doesn't get any better. Somebody who has a rebellious child right now who's in their you know, early 20s, says, is it going to get any better? I'm, I'm parenting an adult child. I said, someday it might get better, but right now probably not. Right? So most of us understand this because we've had teenagers. Now let's say you have a teenage child and they're making decisions that you as a parent can see that the end result of these decisions and the consequences of these decisions they're making now may have a lifelong impact negatively on the life of your child. So as a parent, what do you want to do? You want to intervene. You want to sit down with your child and say, have you considered the decisions that you're making and what the ultimate consequences of those decisions are and where this may lead you in life? And, and the consequences might be lifelong. It might be a temporary thing, but it might be a, a lifelong consequence. And as try as you might, guess what they're doing? They're sitting there going... I'm not listening, not listening, I'm not listening, you're old, you're stupid, I've got, it. I've got it all figured out, how do I know that? Because that's what I did, 
You know, I, I had it all figured out. No, this isn't going to hurt me. No, this isn't going to have a negative impact on my life. No, I've got it all together. I want to, I want to direct and guide in my life and just leave me alone and let me go. This is exactly what the mindset of Israel was pertaining to her Messiah. God, oh, I know that Jesus says he's God in the flesh and he's the Messiah that you promised us so many years ago. Not listening. We've got it all figured out. We're going to go our own way, do our own thing. And as a result of that, they missed out on what could have been in their lives. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that when we are in Christ, that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. And he begins listing off a whole bunch of uh, benefits for walking with Jesus. And he said, what can separate us from this love of God? What can separate us from the grace of God? What can separate us from this covenant relationship we have with God? Nothing can separate us from this. And he just begins to list off all the ways that we'll, you know, things will try to separate us, but they cannot separate us. And then at the end of it, he says, thinking to himself, but what if somebody asks the question, well, what about Israel? You made a covenant relationship with them, and you made them all kinds of promises, and they have rejected their Messiah by and large. Has not God dropped the ball here? Has not God failed to live up to all of the promises he made to Israel? And so Paul, for three chapters, begins to unpack in chapter 9 about Israel in the past, and chapter 10, Israel in the present, and chapter 11, we're going to look at today, Israel in the future. And so we've been talking about and diving into the three most difficult chapters in all the New Testament because it brings up all kinds of issues like predestination and election and, and all these terms that get real fuzzy and we, you know, doctrines are built around these um, particular uh, voices of theology that get skewed sometimes. And so we, we're diving into these chapters because what Paul is doing is he's trying to show us that, listen, as a new covenant believer in Jesus Christ, listen, God has not dropped the ball with Israel. He's not done with her yet. He has some more for the future. But in the meantime, here we are as Gentile believers, and we are a part of the church, the body of Christ. God is now using us in the world in which we live to be the mouthpiece piece, to be the spokesperson, to be the one who carries the power of God contained in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others might experience Christ for themselves and thus experience the same power of God to save, heal, and deliver that you and I have experienced. It's a good place for an amen. Now, the reason why this is important is because when Paul says, in light of God's mercies, he's pointing, therefore, in light of God's mercy, he's pointing all the way back to the 11 chapters he's penned. Let us offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto God. We'll never do that until we balance it against the backdrop of what God's done in our life and is doing. Now, one of the things that we get hooked into and Satan trips us up with is this whole concept of God's sovereignty, that God, his rule and reign over his creation and man's freedom to choose and the tension between God's sovereign rule and human responsibility. And he trips us up with that because there are things that happen in our lives that tr create a tremendous amount of hurt and pain. And if we are not careful, we will begin demanding that God explain himself. And if the explanation is not, is not to our satisfaction, then all of a sudden we put, we put God on trial. And we, in our little finite minds, try to figure out God, and we, we begin looking at God through the lens of our hurt and our pain. And when we try to look at God through the lens of hurt and pain, we develop a distorted version of God, and Satan is the one who's painting that portrait. And it's very difficult to get close to a God, to surrender to a God whose will may have brought some painful things into our lives. And now all of a sudden, rather than closeness and intimacy, there is distance. There is, we have set up this debt-to-debtor relationship in which, God, you owe me. 
this should never have happened. It, it, this is not fair. I, you know, after all I've done, after all I've sought to do, after all that, you know, the, the years that I've spent walking with you, and so we, we, we if we are not careful, uh, we put what C.S. Lewis called God in the dock. Now, when you hear the word dock, it's not speaking of docking your boat. Uh, in, our, um, in our judicial system here in America, if I have committed a crime and I'm on trial, I'm sitting next to my defense attorney at a table, right? This is the way we do it in America. But if you go over into England, if you are on trial for a crime, you are put in the dock. You are put in like, it's almost like a cage that is up next to the bench where the judge presides. And so what happens is that, uh, you know, your, your attorney is, is, yes, trying to defend you, and you have those who are building a case against you, and you have your defense attorney. But what C.S. Lewis says is if we're not careful, we as human beings, we will, we will take God off the bench and put him in the dock, and we'll take ourselves off the dock and put ourselves on the bench. And then we will, we will say to God, you are on trial. You need to explain yourself. You, you, need, to, you need to help me understand why this has happened. And, and you need to, you need to un- help me understand and know to, to the best of my ability or to my satisfaction why it is you do certain things the way that you do them. And so what happens over time is we, we have God on trial and our little finite minds cannot even begin to comprehend or to understand or to fathom what God sees and what God knows and what God oversees. And if, if we can't even understand our material world, what we can see, how can we even think we can understand the supernatural unseen world that God oversees? And so when you put God on trial and you make demands, you move from worship to a spirit of worship to a spirit of accusation, become accusatory against God. And this is what was happening, um, and Paul wants to unpack this because there came a, a viewpoint of theology called replacement theology that said this, well, because God is, uh, is not keeping, uh, you know, he's kind of rejected Israel, therefore he's rejected Israel, he's taken the church, and he's put the church in Israel's place, he's done with Israel, all the promises, all the blessings, now go to the church, and the church will fulfill the plan and the purpose of God. And as a result of that kind of theology, the problem with that teaching is, now we begin to justify anti-Semitism, which has happened in persecution of the Jews over, uh, you know, world history, and it comes up with terrible ideologies, and so, listen, we as the body of Christ have not replaced Israel, God has not replaced her, he has set her aside for a time of being called the time of the Gentiles, which Daniel, in the book of Daniel, talks about this, and some of the prophets, the time of the Gentiles, or the age of the church, that's the age in which you and I now live in. And when the age of the church comes to a conclusion, we will be pulled out of this world. And God, through Jesus Christ, he will come back and establish his kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. And he will rule and reign with the body of Christ. And he will deal once again with Israel. And the gospel will go to Israel throughout the tribulation and throughout the kingdom. He's dealing with Israel so that Israel might turn to her true Messiah that she rejected from the beginning. So that's kind of an overview of history. And so the question, and I put this on your outline, is Paul is saying, has God failed in keeping his promises to Israel? You know, a, a blessing to the, as being a blessing to the nations? He says, absolutely not. And the way he answers this is threefold. He talks about the principle of the remnant. He says, I asked God, chapter 11, verse 1, then did God reject his people? By no means. I am, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of ben- Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Do you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? 
I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a, there's the word remnant. Notice what this remnant is what? Chosen by their good works. Chosen by their ancestry. Chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, if it were grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others are, were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, ears so that they could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. So what is Paul talking about here? Has God rejected Israel? No. How do you understand this in light of chapter 10 and verse 21? But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. In other words, God held out his hands to Israel, bringing them their Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. Those of you who know about the Bible, uh, in the minds of the Israelites, the Messiah, when he came, he would come as a military Messiah. He would come and, and break uh, the stronghold that Rome had on God's people, and he would establish his kingdom immediately, and he would rule and reign. And Israel would be a part of that, that time in history. So when Jesus came, not as a ruling king, but as the Lamb of God, who was going to give his life for the sins of the world, they just couldn't comprehend it. They just couldn't understand it. Even their own you know, teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, they just couldn't grasp the concept that Jesus would come not as a ruling king, but as a suffering servant, even though they know that Isaiah 53 talked extensively about the suffering servant, the Messiah who would come into the world. And so they led their people, by and large, to reject Christ. And so Paul says, you know, our, is God... Has God, um, has he dropped the ball here? He says, by no means, not, absolutely, not even on God's mind. I mean, God made a promise to Israel and Abraham, who is the father of our faith and the father of Israel. God cut a covenant with Abraham that was an unconditional covenant that he says, I will bring to fulfillment. Now, some of the covenants that God cut with Israel were unconditional, some of them were conditional. Now, when you cut a covenant, here's, whenever that covenant was cut, an animal was sacrificed, blood was shed, and you were saying as you walk between the pieces of the, of the animal, may this be done to me if I break this covenant. And so God is the one cutting the covenant. He is the one making the sacrifice. He is the one who is saying, if I do not fulfill every single promise of this covenant, may this be done to me as it has been done to this animal that has been sacrificed on your behalf. This is exactly what Jesus, right? Jesus is the new covenant. He was the Lamb of God who was sacrificed by God on the cross, God cutting a new covenant with us, and he says, if I if I in any way, shape, or form do not hold to the promise of this covenant, may this happen to me as it has happened to Christ. So Paul wants us to be sure that, look, God always, even though it appears that Israel has been set aside, uh, you know, permanently, they have not, God has his remnant. So even in our day and time, there are a remnant of Jewish believers in Jesus Christ, Yeshua, known as the Messianic Jews. Now, it is small, by and large, the church of Jesus Christ is made up of Gentiles all across the, the globe. And so he makes, uh, Paul just pulls up three witnesses that, you know, God is, is going to fulfill what he said he would do. He used himself. He says, while the nation as a whole might have rejected God's working in Messiah, God's always had his remnant. He says, God has not rejected the Jewish people because I am a Jew, Right? In fact, all the early believers were Jewish. Jesus' disciples were, were Jewish. The early believers were Jewish. And so Paul is simply using himself as an example that God chose me 
God chose me, and I responded to that choosing. God foreknew me. He foreloved me. I responded to that foreknowledge and forelove and receiving Jesus as Messiah, that God has built a remnant through whom he is going to continue on taking the gospel across the known globe. And I want you to look at this word. The second thing, God himself, he pulls him up as a witness. He says, listen, um, he uses the word foreknew. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. I want you to understand what that word foreknew means. Oftentimes when it comes to foreknowing an election, a word he uses uh, down in verse 7, people have the idea, well, okay, that, you know, God, and I've shared this with you before, that, you know, God just is, as, as you know, God knits people together in their mother's womb, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell, that's not what it means to be elected, not mean foreknowledge. Or, well, no, what God knows is that, you know, when you're born and uh, he knows everything you're going to do because God's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, there's anything he's not knowing, he's not contained by time, he knows that you're going to respond to the gospel, and so therefore uh, that makes you a part of the elect because he knows you're going to choose if he extends to you, you know, God's grace. And because he foreknows that and foreunderstands that, um, then he has positioned himself accordingly so that you might enter into this, this relationship. Um, this is not what that means. Yes, God has all knowledge. God's not contained by time. To foreknow means, um, because people might say, well, if, if, if that's the way God is, then, you know, it's, it may not be really, really be fair. So foreknowledge means... It speaks of a personal relationship. Um, it speaks of personal affection or personal care. Uh, for example, this word in the Old Testament is found in Genesis 4 where it says that Cain knew his wife and gave birth to a son. Talking about the most intimate relationship human beings can happen. It encompasses this word. Amos 3.2 says, uh, God says of Israel, you only have I known. Well, does that mean God didn't know the other nations? Well, no. Listen, Israel is the only nation that God made a covenant with. Israel was the only nation that he committed himself to know them personally, to attend to their needs, to be their provider, to be their protector, to be the one who would shed his affection upon them. And so it's not just foresight, it's to forelove. And so Paul is making the argument that, listen, God foreknew Israel. He cut this covenant relationship. It wasn't going to be here today and gone tomorrow. What God began back in the past, he is continuing in the present, although it looks like it's not happening. But there is still a remnant of believers in Messiah, in Jesus. And one day in the future, there is going to be a time where all Israel comes to faith in their Messiah. That God is not negating his covenant relationship with Israel any more than he would negate his relationship with us. God still is committed to personal relationship just with Israel through us, through Christ, right? God has commissioned himself, committed himself to be our Savior, to be our Lord, to be, we are the, we are the you know, apple of his eye. He, he pours out his affection on us. It is a, not a distant relationship. It is a personal relationship. It's not one where God's uncaring. It's one where God is very caring, very involved in our lives. And then he pulls out Elijah as an example. Now, remember that Elijah was one of the greatest Old Testament prophets. And Elijah prophesied during a time of uh, in Old Testament history where Israel had one of her most wicked kings, King Ahab, and he had a wife named Jezebel. Now, there's a reason why you, nobody here uh, has ever heard of anybody whose name is Jezebel, right? Nobody names their kids Jezebel. She was not a nice person. And so there's a stigma with that, with that name. And so uh, just to make a long story short, you can go back in 1 Kings in chapter 18 and read the whole story, uh, is that Israel, you know, King Ahab and Jezebel, primarily Jezebel, she was not a worshiper of the true God, right? She was a worshiper of Baal, which was a fertility god, and Jezebel had tremendous influence on Ahab. Uh, in our term, we would say Ahab was henpecked, right? So his wife was really the ruler of, of, of the kingdom at that time, and so she is, she is pushing 
Baal worship onto Israel, and, and they're adapting to that. And, and so finally, Elijah, the prophet of God, was given a word by God, hey, we've got to put a stop to this. And so Elijah says, okay, we're going to have the very first MMA battle in all of human history. And it's going to be the, the God of Baal against the God of, of Israel, right? Yahweh God against Baal. And so he pulls in the prophets. He says to them, all right, I want you to bring all your prophets. So they bring 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. They come, go up on, uh, on Mount Carmel, and he says, it's, it's, it's battle time. And so they, they make two altars, and they each cut up a bull, and they you know, put it on the wood pile. And Elijah says, we're going to pray to our God, and whatever God consumes the the um, offering on the altar by fire is the true God. So, you know, the prophets of Baal, they start praying, and they're praying, and nothing's happening, and now it's noon, and nothing's happening. And, and so Elijah gets, you know, a little frisky, and he starts taunting them. Is your God asleep? Is he deaf? You know, where is he? Why isn't, why isn't anything happening? And they're cutting themselves and praying all the harder, and, and nothing is happening. So Elijah, he... He says, well, it's, it's my turn now, and he has them dump water on his sacrifice. I mean, just buckets of water on it. He prays a one simple little prayer, and God brings fire from heaven, and he consumes the, the, um, the offering, licks up all of the water, and so all of a sudden now, who's God? The God of Israel is the one and true God. Well, when word gets back to Jezebel... Because after this was over, Elijah says to all these false prophets, put them to death, and they did. And word gets back to Jezebel, and Jezebel says, hey, Elijah, I'm going to kill you for what you've done. He runs. Hundreds of miles away, he runs. And while he's on Mount Sinai, hiding in a cave, he's depressed. And God says, hey, come out of the cave, I want to talk to you. And what God says to, um, to Elijah, he says, I've got a word for you. And Elijah says, well, I have a word for you. I have served you faithfully all of my life. Now, I'm the only one left. The only one. God says, you really think that? Yeah, I know. Really. I have 7,000 out there who have not been to their knee to Baal. You're not the only one. There is a remnant who is still faithful to me. And that's Paul's point. When he's talking about the elect chosen by God, he says, listen, whosoever may come and whoever comes has been chosen by the, from the foundation of the world. I know for us as human beings, that's hard for us to understand. All right, this whole doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, all of these words that get passed around, we begin to think to ourselves, well, how can this be? I, I, I just don't understand this. And our finite minds try to wrestle with this. And I just want to say this. There's, there are things that we have real hard time harmonizing in our thought processes. For example, is Jesus 100% God or 100% man or both? Yeah, he's both. Well, how, do you, how do you harmonize that? How, how do you understand that? You can't. How do you understand the Trinity? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God and one essence. But they play three roles. I mean, you'll sit in the corner going, blah, 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 by the time you figure that one out. All right, did the Apostle Paul write the book of Romans or did the Holy Spirit? Both. Well, how do you harmonize that? You can't. Your mind just can't conceive that, how the Holy Spirit guided the hand of Paul and the mind of Paul without overcoming the mind of Paul and, and gave us the Word of God, that is the inerrant Word of God, everything that God wants us to have. And so this is, again, where the real danger is, where we start questioning God and we come to God. Listen, there's nothing wrong with asking God questions. What we have to keep from doing is becoming accusatory in our questions. 
And this is where Paul's going with all this. He's saying, look, God has a remnant. He's always have a rem- has, has had a remnant. All the way back to even Elijah, God had a remnant. He had one in the past. He's got one in the present. He's going to have one into the future. God will fulfill every single covenant promise he ever made to Israel, and he will fulfill every single covenant promise he ever made to you. The push comes is that in that covenant promise relationship, if things happen for which we don't understand, we cannot understand, and it is painful and hurtful, and we're trying to reconcile it, we're trying to understand it, but our finite minds cannot, if we're not careful, we put God in the dock and we start making accusations against him. To which what Job did, he did the exact same thing. What did Job lose? He lost everything except his wife who told him to curse God and die. The only thing God left him was a complaining wife. And Job, you know, struggled as we all would. He struggled and he struggled and his friends were telling him, well, Job, the problem is you did this sin and you did this sin. And Job said, no, I didn't. I haven't done those things. And finally, Job has had enough and he calls God in and he puts God in the dock and he says, God, I've got some questions for you. And God says, great, fine. I'm going to tell you what, you answer my questions and I will answer yours. And then God says to Job, say, Job, um, wow, you know, while we're While we're talking about it here, how about you explain to me the hydrological cycles of the earth? You know, the the wind, the rain, and the lightning. And how about you explain about nature? And on and on, God was firing questions at Job. And finally, it dawned on Job, you know what? Uh, I I cannot understand these things. I I don't understand the mysteries. And so he says, you know what? Here's what Job says. It's all telling. I have heard of you, but now... I see you, and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. God, I had you in the dock. I was a little bit confused. I became judge over you, but now I'm stepping away from the bench, and I'm putting myself in the rightful place, and I'm choosing, in light of all of your mercies in my life, to surrender my body as a holy living sacrifice to you. I don't understand why this is happening to me. I, don't, I can't even comprehend why this is a part of your will, but I'm choosing in an act of my will to worship you and to display my love for you by humbling myself in sackcloth and ashes. You ever been there and needed to do that in your life? I have on more than one occasion. I put God in the dock. So you got to explain yourself. We're going for any further in this relationship. You got you got to do some explaining, as my kids would say. To which God said, "Really?" And when you put God in the dock and you keep him there, and you think to yourself, until you explain yourself, we're not going any further in this relationship. How does that affect you in your walk with the Lord? It affects us greatly. But when you take God out of the dock and let him be God, and knowing that there are just some things for which we will never understand, we will never comprehend, we will never grasp in this lifetime, but we choose to say, but God, you are worthy, you are righteous, you are holy, you are just. You're the God of creation. Where the river flows, there is life. I no longer want to be a product of pride or spiritual ignorance that seeks to diminish you, Father, and bring you to the level of humanity. I want to trust you. How does this, how does this work out in in your daily walk with God. You know, you know that I, I believe in praying for people's healing. Here's how I used to pray. Father, you know this person needs healed. And then I would lay out to God exactly what he needed to do, how he needed to do it, and within what time frame it should be done. I don't do that anymore. When I was diagnosed with cancer, I didn't say to God, you got to heal me, and this is how we're going to do it. This is the time frame in which we're going to do it. Now, get busy. 
Here's how I pray for people's healing. I start with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, how would you have me pray for this person? Because you know what the Holy Spirit knows? He knows what God's going to do or not do. He knows the timing, the way, every, how everything's going to unfold in this. So if I begin praying like, Holy Spirit, I'm just asking you. I'm believing in my heart that you want to heal this person, but I don't know what your will is. But I'm going to, I'm going to move in that direction unless you stop it, unless you divert it, unless you change the direction of it. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know when. I, I, you know, I, just, I don't have any of that information, but I'm just asking for you for a download from you to know how to pray for this individual. As I've shared before, I have prayed for people. I've seen God heal people in miraculous ways. I've prayed for people and had the Holy Spirit say, stop praying for their healing. I am not going to heal them. You need to pray in a new and different way and then redirect my prayers in the way that it needed to go. Do you know that, yes, God heals God heals miraculously. God can heal medically. He can blend the two together, the medical and the miraculous. And God heals mysteriously. Sometimes our healing doesn't happen here on this earth, but outside of this realm. I don't get to make that choice. You don't get to make that choice. I will never understand why my oldest sister, Pam, me, why she, Died in a car accident at age 20, never knowing Jesus, but yet God, in his grace, chose me to enter into relationship with him, and I got miraculously saved and delivered from the things that were destroying my life, but yet she didn't experience that, but I got to. How do you explain that? I can't. And if you try to figure it out, you'll just end up in the corner because I can't. I just know that all through Scripture, election is never put in a negative context. And that God, that Paul never tries to, to resolve the issue. So let's bring us to the pattern of restoration. I only got eight minutes left. This comes in three stages. All right, you'll notice he says in uh, verses 11 and 12, again, I asked, did they stumble so, so as to fall beyond recovery? Speaking of Israel, no, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel what? Envious. And so he says that Israel, mostly negative response, opened up the doors for the Gentiles to believe and to hear and to believe and to be saved. In the book of Acts, you see a very predictable pattern, right? The apostles would go to the synagogues. They'd preach Jesus. They would have a mixed reaction. Most of them rejected. A few of them would accept. Then they would go out into the marketplace, and they'd start preaching Jesus wherever they were in the marketplace, wherever it was. And they noticed that a large number of Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ. God had a remnant of Israel, the apostles, and the early believers, remember there were 120 of them in the upper room, and then after the Holy Spirit comes and Peter preaches, man, there's like 5,000 or 3,000 in one, one day give their life to Christ, and the, the church grows. There's, so there's the Jewish remnant, and now the Gentiles start coming to faith in Christ, and if you look over 100 years of Christianity, it becomes a thriving multi-ethnic movement comp- comprising mostly of Gentiles. And he says the Gentile believers make... Israel jealous. Think of it this way. What if my, my children, when they were teenagers, decided they wanted to leave, house, leave the house? You know, we don't like living under your rules anymore. We're out of here. Okay, fine, go. And so as a result, my wife and I decided, you know what? We're going we're gonna to adopt some kids. We're going to get some foster kids. We're going to get some homeless kids. We're gonna adopt. So we adopt four or five kids, and it's Christmas time, and they're sitting, you know, by the Christmas tree. They've got their hot chocolate and presents all around them. And, and we're singing, you know, some Christmas carols. And, you know, you get, you get the picture, right? 
and then my two biological daughters are outside the house looking through the window, and they're seeing what they have missed. They're seeing what could have been and should have been, but is not now because they rejected us as parents. This is the visual that Paul is painting of Israel now that Israel has rejected her Messiah, and she sees the blessing of God upon the lives of people who are followers of Jesus, they become jealous. They are jealous over the fact that they forsook their Messiah, and now it seems like that God has removed the blessing from Israel, and he's just dumped it all right on the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ that is reaching around the world. And as a result of this, in Israel's future, out of that jealousy, Many will come to faith in, in Christ. And he says at some point, number three, in the future, Israel as a nation will come back to God, leading to a worldwide gospel movement. He says this in verses uh, 15 and 16. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, will, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as the first roots is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are, are the branches. And he launches in to this description of the branches and having something grafted into those branches being grafted into the vine. And so what Paul is, is saying is this. In the present, there are a remnant of Jewish believers. By and large, the church is Gentile. When this age of the church comes to an end. It comes to an end through the what's known as the rapture of the church. God pulls the church out of the world. He restrains the Holy Spirit, you know, removes his restraints on evil. Tribulation begins for seven years. During that seven-year period of tribulation, God will raise up 144,000 witnesses, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, who will go to the four corners of the earth preaching the gospel. And during tribulation, there will be many Jewish people who give their life to Christ, and some Gentiles, but many Jewish people, but those who give their life to Christ during the tribulation, especially on the second half of the tribulation, most of them will be martyred. And at the end of the tribulation, Jesus comes back with his church and establishes his kingdom here on earth for a thousand years, known as the millennial reign of Christ. It is during that time that Jesus will deal with the nation of Israel as a whole. And when it says all Israel will be saved, it doesn't mean that every single person of Israel will be saved. It just means as a nation, by and large, they are going to turn finally to their true Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. We as the body of Christ will be here with Jesus during that millennial reign of Christ, and we will be uh, ruling and reigning with him. And this is the promise that God has made, and he will fulfill. In other words, there is absolutely nothing on the human side that can stop the progression of what God says will ultimately happen. So I, I know that big stick, you know, stickler in our, our day and time is about climate change. Is the climate changing on planet Earth? Is, is it getting warmer? Well, everybody would say, yes, it is, but it doesn't seem to be adversely affecting our planet in too negative of a way. In fact, there are things that are happening now that weren't happening before. But my, the, my point is, everybody keeps saying, from back in the 80s, 12 years, climate, we're done. 12 years, that 12 years went by. Another 12 years, Al Gore, 12, we got 12 years, we're gone. Now we're here, another 12 years. 12 years, you know, if, if we don't get things, we're gone. Listen, <laughs> We are to be good stewards of our climate and our earth, but that's not how it is. God is in control of how all this history unfolds, and it will unfold according to his will, his plan, his purpose, and his, his timing. And so Paul says that Israel was cut off the vine, and she was set aside, and God grafted in the church, the Gentiles, and now we are, we are the recipients of this incredible relationship with God, and um, this leads him uh, into a, a doxology of praise in um, verses 33 through 38, the praise of the redeemed. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable 
his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has ever given to God that God should repay him. For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. And so the warning that Paul gave in verses 17 through 22 that we've not taken time to look at is that when we whom are grafted by God should never grow complacent, we shouldn't boast, we shouldn't grow complacent in our relationship with God. And so he breaks into this this doxology, the praise of the redeemed. And here's what you want to remember. God is not a concept to be mastered. He is a person who is to be worshipped. And here's why we worship him, even though I don't understand things, and even though I have questions, and even though I struggle in my faith at times because I can't rectify what God is doing with God being you know, loving and kind and generous and merciful, I'm thinking, well, no, he's, he's being anything but that. And, and so it, it causes this consternation in our minds and our hearts. He says, Paul says, listen, we're, we're going to pull this together. God's wisdom, God knows what he's doing. You have to trust him. God's knowledge, he says, God has all the facts, so don't doubt him, don't disagree him, because there's not a one of us who has all the facts or can see it from God's perspective. God's judgment, God always makes the right decision and no one judges God. Inscrutable, God's ways are beyond our understanding, and so we should not second guess him. Listen, those of us who have become the recipients of the riches of Christ we should what? We, we may not understand. We may be battling. We might be struggling. But I'm telling you, the way you get out of your funk is not by demanding God make his, you know, his, his, his ways known to you. It's not through accusatory remarks. You can ask questions. You can struggle all you want. Just don't become accusatory towards God. But the way out of your depression, the way out of your funk is not through demanding from God. It is through worship of him. This was what Paul, what David did all through the Psalms. Yes, he struggled, he questioned, he battled. But at the end of the day, he, re, he just turned back to the Lord and said, I don't understand it all, I can't conceive it all, but I'm going to worship you. Why do we do that? Because of the fullness of the mercies of God. One second in heaven and all of eternity, we will erupt in praise and adoration for all the things that God has done for us and in us and will ultimately do through us. And so the appropriate response to the mysteries of theological concepts, it's in uh, ask questions as long as you don't throw in accusations. It's not wrong to wander, but you don't want to wander away from your heavenly Father. I want you to bow your head for a moment. Um, I, want, I want you to think in, in terms of ultimately what Job did, ultimately what Elijah did, ultimately what David did, ultimately what Paul did, ultimately what believers have done through the centuries, we bow our knee and we say, oh God, you are worthy. You are God and I am not. I don't understand everything. I'm, I'm just finite. There is a limit to my understanding, but there is no limit to you. There's no limit to your wisdom. There's no limit to your, your love, your grace, your mercy. There's no limit to your goodness Oh, God, I love you, and it is in worshiping you that, Father, I believe I will discover my freedom and my release. And I will come to the place that you once again become the relationship of my greatest joy. And I just, I just fall before you. I just bow before you humble myself and ask through praise and through worship that you will drop the chains that Satan has wrapped me up in, keeping me tied up and keeping me in this debt-to-debtor relationship with you. God, I pray for freedom for your people. I pray for freedom from those things that we don't understand, those things, those concepts, those hurts and pains in our lives for which we cannot rectify with a God of love and grace and mercy. Because, Father, we know that in the end, we are the recipients of that grace and that mercy. 
And I pray for those who are struggling right now. It is real. The struggle is real. Father, you know it's real. And I pray where there's separation. I pray where there is bondage that, Father, you would, you would break that bondage, that you would reconcile that, that intense separation inside their hearts. And just, we would come to the place of Job. We would just fall on our knees and, and start worshiping you once again. And just watch the chains begin to fall. Because Satan cannot hold us if we're worshiping. We're worshiping you. He just can't. He has no power over that. And it releases the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is released, Father, your will is released. And your will is that we would, we would, we would come and we would live in this intimacy with you. Where you, you meet us when we're brokenhearted. You said that you will bring peace you will bring shalom into hearts that are, that are broken, that are shattered, Lord. Father, I pray that you would reassemble some hearts here today. That we would take the shattered pieces and begin putting them back together again. That once again they might walk in intimacy and oneness, heart, mind, and spirit. They might love you above all else. Because we know ultimately that our brokenness can become a place of beauty. As hard as that is, as difficult as that seems, God, you work miracles with shattered lives. And I pray that over our church today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I just want to encourage you, the altar is open. Maybe you need to come this morning, just bow and bend a knee and say, God, you know, there's some things I don't understand. There are some hurts, there's, some, there's anger inside of me, there is, I, I'm, I'm resentful. I am, I don't know what to do with all these emotions. Just come and bow, lay them at the altar. This is always the answer. As we come in worship and we release the spirit and let the spirit do what only he can do in our lives